Chapter Six of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Six: A Smoky Atmosphere. Beautiful spring mornings. Aunt Hannah called the days that were now upon them. She had written of them in her last letter to Martha, and put so much unconscious poetry into her description as to call forth from John the statement that. Aunt Hannah ought to have been educated and had her chance in the world, in which case he believed she would have been a second Mrs. Browning, and Martha had made the half-laughing, half-earnest reply, "She has been better than that. She's brought up a minister and is a perfect housekeeper." The sad truth must be told that the cares of housekeeping sat very heavily indeed on the shoulders of this young wife. The spring mornings did not seem beautiful to her. The little kitchen of the parsonage had been built on the sunniest side of the house, and apparently sheltered from draughts, with as much care as though it had been an invalid. Neither was the stove which belonged to the parsonage conductive to cheerfulness. When the wind was in the wrong quarter, it smoked, and when Mrs. John was in charge, the wind seemed to be nearly always in the wrong quarter. As a usual thing, the oven chose to make everything very black as to upper crust and very raw as to under. Once Mattie had hinted to their next-door neighbor that she thought the parsonage stove must be wearing out, and had been treated with such a history of its many perfections as rehearsed by dear Mrs. Perkins, who was the much-quoted wife of John's predecessor, as had amused Mattie at the time, despite the evident and unfavorable contrast that was drawn between her and Mrs. Perkins. Certain exaggerated statements then made had amused her so much. That she had been tempted to rehearse the conversation to John with inimitable reproduction of tone and manner, he had laughed immoderately. But he had also, when the laugh was over, said, "By the way, Mattie dear, we will have to be very careful in mentioning any little defects about the parsonage or its furnishings. This parsonage has been the very apple of their eye. They did have everything in unusual perfection here when the place was new, and it is hard for them to realize that things can wear out." We shall have to respect their feelings and be as silent as we can. Now, this was by no means the first time that Mattie dear had received just such pleasantly worded cautions, although she believed herself to be the soul of prudence and forbearance. These were very wearing days to her in many respects, and once she had been startled and ashamed to find herself, after one of these cautions, muttering that she believed John respected everybody's feelings but her own, even the stoves. It was very silly and unjust. She knew nothing would have tempted her to say it to him. At least, so she believed. Nevertheless, it seemed a relief to her nervous weariness to say it to herself. And so, because of many things, the spring mornings were a weariness to Mrs. Remington. She stood in the kitchen on one of the worst of these mornings, fanning herself to get a breath of air, and feeling almost as lifeless as the leaves of the maple, which did not even fan themselves. But lay perfectly still. How there could be any wind to be wrong this morning, she did not understand. Yet the stove smoked, and though she had patiently shut and opened in turn every damper, it still refused to draw. It was late, and her miserable bread, which she had come to hate with a fierceness that appalled her, was slipping over the sides of the tins in a sly way that it had, which its mistress had come to know meant re-kneading and soda. And much weariful waiting for, unless the fire came up very soon. She had been late with her breakfast Saturday morning, as it was, and John had said ever so gently, 
We must get around earlier on Saturdays, dear. You know it is my busy day. Then she had ventured to say what she had often thought of saying to him, that Dr. Carruthers never used to study on Saturdays. He took those for his rest days in order to be fresh for the pulpit. And John had replied, almost coldly, that of course he was not Dr. Carruthers, and must work in his own way, even as the doctor had in his. And his way was to give his best and hardest work to his sermon on Saturday, in order to be throbbing with it on Sabbath. Now, Dr. Carruthers was her own dear pastor. His was an honored name in all the churches. He had had forty years of experience in sermon-making, and he was counted as the most eloquent preacher in the city of her birth. Why need John speak as though his opinion was to be set aside as a thing of no moment to a young minister? It sounded almost like egoism in him to speak of his way, as though so young a man could be supposed to have any settled way of his own yet. She had not put precisely these thoughts into words, but she had said words, and John had answered them in a way that made the stove seem inclined to draw less than it would otherwise have done. Not that these two had quarreled. Oh, no. They were too genuinely in accord at heart, and withal too refined, to have done such a thing. But John had spoken in a different tone from usual, and had said at last, abruptly, Well, I certainly must go and work hard, if it is Saturday. Goodbye, dear. And he had not kissed her, nor had he remembered that it was baking day, and she would need some longer wood on purpose for the oven, nor that the pump went hard, and she would need several pails of water. It was not because the pump went so hard that the young wife, thinking of these things, took the corner of her apron to wipe away a tear. Her bit of a sink was piled full of dishes. John had brought home a brother minister to dinner with him the day before, and then had said that she must really attend to the funeral of the old Mr. Jacobs. It was the custom here, and the people would feel that she was lacking in respect if she did not go, that the dishes could wait until afterward, and he would help her with them. But in the first minute of the afterward, even while they were turning away from the cemetery, he had said, the Potters live on this road, about half a mile from here. I think we ought to take this time to call on them. Mr. Potter asked me yesterday if we had moved away. Mattie thought of her dishes, but went to the Potters, being greeted with, Why, you don't say. We had no notion you ever meant to call on us. Gave it up long ago. Then, having been kept waiting, while Sarah and Jane Potter put on their best dresses and frizzed their hair, it dawned upon the minister's consciousness that, Brother Ferris lived within sight of the Potters, and that it would never do to pass his gate. And then, and then. Who that has made calls in a country parish does not know the story? Who is surprised that it was dark when the minister's horse reached his own stable, or that the minister ran in, after stabling him, to say, Mattie, we'll have to take just a bite and run. The first bell is ringing. I had no idea it was so late." When she ventured to hint that perhaps she would better not go to Friday evening meeting this week, he had turned toward her with a full face of consternation to ask if she were sick, and she had hastened to reassure him by saying, Oh, not at all, but then the dishes, you remember? Oh, the dishes, said the reverend gentleman with a relieved smile. He was superior to dishes, good man. Never mind them, we'll do them when we come home. Don't stay from the meeting, dear, unless you have a very big reason. Such an example, you know. This people are so given to making excuses. So they had taken that bite, 
which the initiated know soiled more dishes than the orthodox supper thinks of doing, and made all speed to the meeting. After meeting, the minister was told that Deacon Brewster was sick and wanted to see him on particular business, and Maddie, who was not used to the country streets and did not dare go home alone, must needs wait in Mrs. Brewster's kitchen, while that good woman nodded and yawned behind her knitting work, and the deacon kept up a low growl of talk with the minister behind the half-closed bedroom door. Something in the talk must have disturbed him, for he was very quiet on the way home, and looked so pale and tired that, late as it was, Mattie had not the heart to say, dishes, again, knowing well that he would insist upon helping. So she set her sponge and went to rest. Remembering the crowded sink, and the faint spring morning, and the feeling she was sure to have after a day spent in calling. Do you wonder that the breakfast was late, and the eggs so rare that John could not eat his, and that a tear rolled down the flushed cheek and dropped on her nice brown apron? It was just at that moment, the woe-begone embarrassing moment, that the gate clicked, and Mrs. John, with a start and a dismayed glance around the room, hastened to the side door to forestall any of their people from coming in through the kitchen, and encountered at the doorway the much-bundled figure of Aunt Hepsy Stone. For one little minute the young wife's heart had throbbed with a gleam of hope. That gray shawl in which the figure was wrapped was a counterpart of Aunt Hannah's own, but the next moment she caught a glimpse of the face behind the thick green veil, and the hope was gone. "'Well, don't you mean to let me in, after all?' I'm beat out enough, I can tell you, to be ready to come in and sit down in something decent. A long ride over such roads as you keep in this country doesn't make a body feel much like standing. With the first clause from this sentence, Mattie had sprung blushing from the doorway in which she had framed herself, and drawn forward a rocking chair. I beg your pardon, Aunt Hepsy. I was so surprised to see you that I forgot what I was doing. Is Aunt Hannah sick? Not unless selfishness is a disease— said Aunt Hepsy, grimly, as she unwound the long worsted shawl in which her head was bound. Hannah has lived alone so long that she hasn't the least idea there is another person in the world than her precious self. I have borne a great deal, even in the short time that I have been in her house, because I knew that, living alone as she had, it was natural she should have grown selfish, and I made up my mind to stand her if there was any such thing but when it comes to turning the whole house out of doors, damp nights like these, and leaving us all at the mercy of tramps, and then being so cranky about it when one tries to reason a little common sense into her, why, it isn't to be expected that human nature can bear it. She's as good as told me last night to get out of her house, and I did. I got up before day and was off. She may take off the whole left side of her house tonight for all I care. I've washed my hands of her, I meant to spend the rest of my life with her and help her through, but she is too cranky for me. I made up my mind in the night that I'd come and live with folks that were too young to be set in their way, and with me to resolve is to do. I never was one of your wishy-washy women, who took all day to make up their minds which way to turn. Hannah hadn't thought of waking up this morning when I left. How she'll feel when she finds me gone I can't say, but it serves her right for talking to me as she did. Folks can't bear everything, if they are patient. Can you imagine Maddie's state of mind? This terrible aunt, who had been the trial of her life during the memorable day she had spent with them on her way east, had invaded the peaceful little home planned for these two, planted herself in John's easy chair, 
and announced her determination to live with them. Could human nature bear this? Would John bear it? Would he allow her to be taken possession of and made a household drudge for the sake of this old woman whom he certainly could not love? A dozen times that morning, as she made her hurried way about the kitchen, did she assure herself that John would never permit it in the world. A visit was one thing, and to come all uninvited to live with them was certainly another. Yet, as she flew about her warm little kitchen, in frantic anxiety not to have the dinner very late, she knew she was also anxious to see how John would act. She had tried to shield his morning from interruption, but had failed. In vain she had assured Aunt Hepsy that his Saturday mornings were very precious, that she did not allow herself to interrupt him unless the need was imperative. Aunt Hepsy had said, Nonsense! As though she should interrupt him by stepping in and saying, How do you do? A young fellow like him mustn't begin by being so notional. She was just going to walk into his study as a matter of course. If he were humored in all these silly notions, he would be like Aunt Hannah herself before they knew it. The lecture closed with the following sentence. You needn't be afraid, young woman. I'm not a mite. I knew John Remington before you did, before you were born, in fact, and I can manage him without any trouble. Manage him. The idea. Maddie's eyes flashed over the thought as if he needed management in any way or would permit any human being to do it. She meant to steal up to their room for a moment after she had rung the little silver call bell, which was his summons to dinner, and, while he was brushing his hair, say to him that she had not meant to be cross, nor to think of comparing him with Dr. Carruthers. She would rather hear one sermon of his than one hundred of the eminent doctors. Then she would say how sorry she was that his precious morning had been interrupted, and tell him how hard she had tried to prevent it. She felt almost certain that he would in reply tell her how very sorry he was that his Aunt Hepsy had come to add to her cares, and assure her that, after a little while, when she had made them a visit, and had had time to get her ruffled feelings toward Aunt Hannah smoothed, he would tell her in the kindest, most Christian manner, of course, that his wife was not strong enough for a larger family than two, and that Aunt Hannah would be hurt if she remained." This being the case, Mrs. John planned to say in her most cheerful tone, Never mind, John, don't worry about me. I shall manage nicely, I dare say, and I shall contrive some way not to have her hinder you again, either. See if I don't. Elated over this very soothing and encouraging conversation, she almost let the gravy scorch, snatching it away in the last perilous second at the expense of two fingers that immediately puffed themselves up and smarted, and the clock in the dining-room told one, and John was already on his way downstairs, chatting and laughing with his aunt, and there were half a dozen last things to do, whether the fingers burned or not. He had forgotten all about Dr. Carruthers, and he had apparently not been disturbed by his aunt's advent. On the contrary, his voice was full of cheer, and he seated her at the table as though she had been a queen, and did not come to help Mattie bring in the dishes, and nothing anywhere was as she thought it would be. End of chapter 6